Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. I'm Will. And this is the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the post office scandal and what we as a nation can learn from one of the country's greatest miscarriages of justice. Hello, I'm Anusha Kellyan, Britain editor at The New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have Will Dunn, our business editor, and Freddie Hayward, our political correspondent. Between 2009 and 2015, more than 700 people who ran post offices also known as sub-postmasters, were wrongly accused of embezzling money and subsequently prosecuted. The fault was actually that of a dodgy computer accounting system. In addition to having to pay back the money from their own pockets, the strain, stress and stigma of this wrongful conviction destroyed the livelihoods of many of the sub-postmasters who were subject to criminal convictions, imprisonment and bankruptcy. In some cases, this also led to illness, divorce and suicide. In 2019, the High Court ruled that the Horizon system was faulty and in 2020, the government set up a public inquiry. But this has had renewed national interest thanks to the ITV drama Mr Bates versus the Post Office, which aired in the New Year week and has resulted in a major intervention by the government this week, which will introduce a blanket law to exonerate all those who were convicted. Freddie, take us through the latest political fallout on this. Yeah, so Rishi Sunak stood up in front of a crowd on Monday and he said that uh, he had sympathy for the victims, he expressed horror at what happened, uh, but that was sort of it. There wasn't a big announcement about how the government's going to correct what's happened in the past. There wasn't a huge amount on uh, compensation, and that's changed. So yesterday, before PMQs, uh, Rishi Sunak announced that he's going to introduce some legislation in the next uh, few weeks that will, in effect, have a mass exoneration of those who have been uh, accused under this scandal. So that's where they are. I think the government have seen that they need to take the initiative on it. Uh, they've recognised that the public outcry has been so great uh, that the response so far has been insufficient. Um, and this has placated some people in his party. There's still some calls about whether there's sufficient uh, compensation for those who weren't convicted but were still implicated in the scandal. In some sense, there's also concerns from many lawyers that this is an overreach from Parliament because they're essentially... Uh, interfering with the independence of the judiciary. Um, you know, the you know, response to that is, of course, that Parliament's the highest court in the land and it's up to Parliament to uh, to essentially do whatever they like. But there are some uh, problems with it. But essentially, the key point is that the government has taken the initiative and they have said they're going to try and ex- exonerate all of those involved. Mm, and even if they've introduced this measure, 
There's further risks, aren't there, particularly to political reputations. So Ed Davey, who was a relevant minister at the time, has been under fire. I think he's been accused of fobbing off victims during the time that he was um, the minister in charge. Uh, Even Keir Starmer, so as head of the Crown Prosecution Service, some of these prosecutions were brought by the Crown Prosecution Service. Was he in charge at the time? You know, what questions does he have to answer? And even Rishi Sunak himself, because I think something like £3.6 billion worth of contracts have been given to Fujitsu, which was the firm running this uh, Horizon IT system that went wrong while Sunak has been Chancellor and Prime Minister. Yeah. And of course, there's all sorts of other characters who who will be drawn into this as well. Yeah, it's worth saying there have been 17 ministers who have been responsible for postal affairs since Horizon was introduced. So I think it's fair to say that all parties are implicated in it. Yeah, um, at the, yeah you're right. At the start of the week, we had the Conservatives essentially briefing a lot that Ed Davey had to resign over this because he was Postal Affairs Minister under the coalition. I mean, the coalition forever haunting the Lib Dems. Um, But I I think the Lib Dems' response to that was essentially, okay. well, yes, Ed Davey regrets that he didn't know, as he said, he doesn't know uh, that the post office was misleading him. However, I think the broader picture, as you say, Anoush, is that so many parties have been in government when this scandal has been going on. Yeah, and it was actually under John Major's government, wasn't it, when they first decided yeah. to try and introduce Yeah, it was to try and to... crack down on benefit fraud. Yeah. And, and Will, I mean, how do does the government decide how to award contracts like this? Like, why is Fujitsu, a Japanese firm, running computer systems in post offices in rural Wales? Well, um, I suppose the most fundamental answer is that we um, have gone through a process um, in the last um, sort of 15, 20 years of outsourcing more and more and more of um, the work of the state to um, private companies. So um, when the when the Tories came in in um, 2010, I think in 2009 to 10 financial year, the government spent about £64 billion on um, uh, outsourcing. Uh, and um, in the last financial year, um, that had gone up to 222 billion. So there's been a massive expansion of, you know, the the the, the narrative of smaller government uh, under mm-hmm. conservative rule is accompanied by a huge expansion on what we spend um, on uh, on private companies. And um, Fujitsu is um, one of a, a number of um, what are called strategic suppliers. So these are companies that are essential basically to the running of the state really um and since 2012 they've had um 197 contracts from the government um adding up to i think it's about 6.8 billion um, pounds worth of work um and when you look at those contracts most of them um we don't know how they were awarded because the people who awarded those contracts haven't recorded the exact process which um, is the first sort of red flag in mm. the um, in the narrative that outsourcing to private businesses gives you you know you, you get a more efficient state because you have private businesses bidding and and it's competitive. In fact, only a very small minority of those contracts were awarded through a competitive tender process. Um, many more of them were awarded through um, what's called a, a call off agreement from a framework. So a framework is a a bit like a kind of VIP lane where the government will decide that a bunch of companies are the most likely people who will do this work. And then they they get contracts um, from that framework. And then um, in a lot of cases, when you read through these contracts, um, I was reading through one earlier um, with um, HMRC from last year um, between Fujitsu and HMRC, and it explicitly says 
that um, Fujitsu is the only company that can do this work for them because it's already provided a bunch of IT stuff, uh, especially in the case of technology companies, is really complicated uh, to do. Um, they're probably using a load of proprietary hardware and software, and to take it all out again would be enormously expensive um, and difficult, and you would end up spending loads more. And so they, they just kind of have to give it to the same supplier that they gave a previous part of a contract to. Um, and in many cases, companies know that, um, so they can do things like um, going in with a very optimistic um, early sort of contract agreement. Some cases, you know, like um, the US company uh, Palantir, when they started doing the NHS data store during the pandemic, they did it for, for a pound. Mm. <laughs> and that wasn't because they were just, you know, really generous. <laughs> um, it's because they knew that in a, couple, a year or so's time, uh, in fact, the, towards the end of that year, they would then get a contract worth hundreds of millions because that service would have become essential and it would have become necessary for the government to issue them with a contract. Obviously, you know, civil servants aren't that easily fooled, but they're also optimistic when it comes to um, spending public money and in some cases might uh, well agree to what looks like a, a nice cheap contract that will have some further cost implications down the line, but they might not be there to, to take the flat. Yeah, that, and it makes a bit of point. a mockery of the idea of the whole idea of outsourcing government services, doesn't it? Because mm. the idea is to get the best price yeah. value for money for the taxpayer. But if you're not putting it out to a proper tender process and you're just assuming the same company has to do it each time, then the, the, that competition element isn't there. I remember speaking to a, a Serco insider during the pandemic. I think they'd been um, sort of outsourced by the DWP to do some pick up some of the extra universal credit processing. Um, and they were saying exactly this, that, um, you know, the contract had been cheap, knowing that then it's more likely that, you know, rather than go through the whole process of tender and trying to find other contractors, then they would just get get the same contract for a lot more money um, in the future. Um, but you've argued in a piece this week, a very good piece, which all our listeners should go and have a look at, that actually Fujitsu shouldn't be the, necessarily be the... The, the only villain of this story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the piece is called uh, Don't Blame Fujitsu, which isn't, uh, you know, <laughs> obviously I love Fujitsu. Uh, Will was like not paid. A, this, <laughs> this podcast brought to you by Fujitsu. It's not. Uh, no, it's, it's, I do say in the piece that Fujitsu is clearly to blame for um, the failings of the Horizon system. And there's a suggestion there might be, uh, uh, you know, criminal proceedings. What is clear is that uh, this is a, a much wider problem mm. in terms of the way the state is run. The big question about whether you can have a quote unquote small state, especially, you know, with the kind of cost pressures that we see in the economy at the moment with, you know, things like an aging society. Um, and um, yeah, and it, uh, and the, the, the people who are perhaps more to blame are the, the officials, um, ministers, not just Ed, Ed Davey, you know, lots and lots of people, you know, a, a pattern that we see repeated um, in scandals like this um, is officials not being straight with ministers about things. So I've um, done some reporting on HMRC and the failure to close a tax loophole. And Stephen Timms, who was the minister at the time, said, you know, he just wasn't wasn't told about this. Um, on uh, Andrew Marr's other show, which we won't be linking to, but you know, <laughs> not as good. But uh, uh, Andrew was speaking to um, uh, Andy Burdham, who said, you know, with regard to the infected blood inquiry, yes, he was not given the full information. He was, you know, uh, and that, you know, there is these processes create this this kind of institutional defensiveness, yeah. And the money's not been spent properly, 
or promises have been made and then they're kind of, you know, people realise that actually things are going to start to get expensive and the inf- institution, you know, circles the, the wagons. Well, yeah, I was just speaking actually this week to the son of a victim of the infected blood scandal who was making this exact point. He was saying it's almost irrelevant which ministers sort of get put up for blame because it's the officials often the same officials who are giving them the same bad advice or the same bad set of options each time. And so he'd become very disillusioned, you know, having fought for decades for compensation, which he still hasn't received for his family. Um, he'd become disillusioned with the government machine and sort of the way Whitehall works rather than sort of seeing it as anything particularly party political or, or seeing any particular minister as a villain. Yeah, quite. I was speaking to one minister recently and they essentially said that they only realised that some of their statistics that were key to their policy at the time uh, weren't what they thought they were is because they had a meeting with their Labour counterpart and the Labour counterpart pointed it out and the official was sat next to them and they turned to look at them. Is that true? And the official said, well, yes, I I guess it is, but they didn't know themselves. (laughs) So I I, I think that's right. I mean, Ed Davey in his defence is very much tried to uh, blame officials and also some of the campaigners have as well. They've been, I mean, Alan Bates, who's the, the lead campaigner, has been quite clear that it's probably not appropriate to exclusively blame the ministers or Ed Davey because it is the system at large. I mean, going back to what you were saying, Will, about the, the sort of chronic dependence that the state has on mm. uh, private um, sector companies who are either Circo or G4S or whatever it might be. I mean, it does speak to an erosion of state capacity. I mean, you'll have those on the right who will say, well, actually, if you look at state spending as a portion of GDP, it's extremely high. Well, yes, sure. But uh, we also have to look at the challenges that are, are facing the state. You know, people are calling for higher defence funding. We've got an ageing population. We've also had such low growth of that percentage, um, obviously, as, as a percentage goes up in relation to the size of the economy. Um, so there are there are problems with the capacity of the state. And I think that's part of the problem because you can go through the list of scandals that we've seen over the years and the failure of the government to grasp, grasp them or to um, meet out justice. Um and ministers are held to blame, but really we are seeing such an endemic issue in, in, on so many occasions that you have to look at the system itself. After the break, we'll ask, will there be soul-searching in Westminster over this scandal? If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all of our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. 
Um, I mean, soul searching is probably <laughs> always too far a term for Westminster, but I think... <laughs> yeah, they um, don't have souls, sorry. I, I mean, that. <laughs> well, I, would, I would also <laughs> want to go that far, Anoush. But I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? That I do think the, the tone's probably shifted within the public discourse in the past 20 years. If you go back to the new Labour era, the whole point then was about injecting market principles into how we uh, provide public services. I think that's that's gone away to some extent. We still got uh, talk about public sector reform under Labour, but they're quite resistant, I think, to say that market principles as such, just on principle, should be injected. I mean, it's interesting as well, if you look back to the privatisation of Royal Mail, Mm -hmm. um, obviously separate to the the post office, but the privatisation under David Cameron, I mean, in many ways, it's been a failure because Royal Mail now have got these huge problems with uh, profit. They're they're, they're struggling to stay afloat, for instance. You've got the uh, unions who are going on strike, um, and they also have this legal requirement for universal service, which is, you know, the post coming six days a week, which they say they can't really do as a private profit-seeking company. Mm. Well, yeah, because Amazon don't do that. The competitors don't do that. So, of course, I mean, they're going to struggle to do that. I mean, I think that speaks to the fact that as soon as you have the government trying to um, confuse or try and outsource things that only a, a government or a state can naturally do, uh, then you are going to encounter problems. Yeah, and and it's interesting because it's not always the way. I think I think for labour it should be about what works rather than sort of rejecting the the principle of injecting the market into the yeah, state or yeah, not. Yeah. Because I remember speaking to recently to a former prison governor who'd worked in public prisons, and they were saying, you know, private prisons now are much better run than public prisons because of the state that public prisons are in. They can't, you know, afford to pay their staff or retain their staff properly and all of the Mm -hmm. issues that we've spoken about on previous podcasts that I won't go through. Whereas private prisons, you know, are much more, you know, prisoners want to be sent to those. You know, if they're going to be transferred, they want to go to a circo-run prison or something. So, so, you know, it's not always the case that... um, these 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 big government contractors are necessarily the bogeymen, but it depends on which part of the state you're talking about. I think it also depends on the how realistic the accounting is, mm-hmm. and I think like, maybe there is a, an opportunity now for like, the accounting principles of government to be assessed. I mean, look at the, the constantly shifting um, number of t- tens of billions that HS two uh, may or may not cost. Um, those the the reason those costs vary so much is to do with the the initial business case that has to be made, um, which is to do you know which which then you know becomes very very optimistic, um, you know the, the the returns are overstated and the extent to which the costs will inflate uh, are understated, uh, uh, because you know there isn't a, a single principle of sort of honest accounting within government that everyone is is held to. Um, and I, th- I think that is a that is a real problem in in public procurement. Yeah, and and we shouldn't forget that you know there there are sort of a lot of people at the heart of this story whose lives have been put on hold or or destroyed um, by this scandal. And there's so many other miscarriages of justice where people are still waiting for for justice. So. You know, there's still members of the yeah. Windrush generation who are waiting for access to that compensation scheme. I think there were, th- as of last summer, there were still three Grenfell families who were stuck in temporary accommodation. So they still hadn't been re- rehoused properly. You have the infected blood scandal victims, which I mentioned. Um, I mean, I've been looking into this for a piece this week about why it just takes so long. And, you know, there's all sorts of different elements to this. You know, the government can worry about the costs of paying out those compensations. That's a big part of it, particularly what you were saying, Will, about sort of Whitehall officials being, you know, thinking about the short term in terms of saving money. Um, But there's also, I think, which I've picked up from people that I've spoken to, 
perhaps a lack of respect or or a lack of um, recognition that 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 people often who you know don't necessarily have a loud political voice are suffering at the hands of this big you know bureaucracy the machine um and and it does take something like this to capture the public imagination to make politicians act in the case of the, the post office scandal um it's just it, it it seems in retrospect so wild that anyone really believed that hundreds and hundreds of people were all committing exactly the same crime in the same way uh you know that that at the same time yeah a whole class of employees of one organization had suddenly decided to commit theft or fraud on on quite a large scale it just seems inherently improbable but like you say they just weren't believed um and you know that's there there are lots of cases i i think personally the 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 loan charge um scandal is a, is another one that's potentially yeah. brewing that's has affected as many as 70,000 people as in the case of the post office scandal, um, there have um, been suicides of people who have been affected by it. Um, and, you know, but the, a lot of those people just, yeah, they've been telling me they just they just aren't listened to by government. Uh, you know, the institutional reaction to ministers is very clear that these people are wrong, you know, that, that they were in the wrong and, that, yeah, and the, uh, the, the, the institution protects itself and, and the, the victims aren't listened to. Yeah. There's also a... I mean, if we look at the political consequences of this as mm. well, it's not surprising that so many people are frustrated, apathetic yes. about politics when all of these scandals go on for so long. I mean, Alwyn Turner has got a great book on the on the noughties where he speaks about the erosion of trust that occurred during that uh, period and how it sort of led to some of the political problems that we saw in the 2010s. I mean, if you look at the uh, the child sex abuse scandal, mm-hmm. it was followed by the expenses scandal. We had the Iraq war. There were so many ways in which public authority was sort of seen to be uh, at odds with the truth. Um, And it can't be good to have all of these things constantly coming up and people just look at it and go, well, okay, well, I can't trust the politicians because, you know, either they don't have the proper information because the state itself isn't providing it or they're trying to cover their back or justice will take years and years after a public inquiry to uh, come to the fore. And And I think that's almost a consequence or something that it feels quite like a, a modern phenomenon. Yeah. You know, it's something that comes, it's sort of defined the past two decades as such. Yeah, and it can often be, you know, I think it can often be an electoral risk, particularly to the Conservatives. So I've been looking into the cladding and built wider building safety crisis yeah. for a long time. And often these people are the sort of, you know, dream Tory voters. They're young professional couples who are wanting, you know, on the brink of starting families. They've done everything the Conservative government has told them to do with help to buy, saving money to buy a property. Um, And then suddenly they're coming up against this understanding that the government doesn't really care about their situation and they're being blamed for buying a leasehold that they bought in good faith and in a nice new flat that looked lovely. And suddenly they're realising that actually there's no one on their side. And and it really is radicalising. Like some of the people that I've spoken to have said that they'd never vote again or that, you know, it made them feel very differently about politics to how they felt before. You know, one person who was an entrepreneur, you know, he was starting his own businesses. He worked in America. He was he was very conservative in his in his values, said that, you know, he couldn't trust the conservative government ever again because of the state that he'd he'd been put in. So I do think there are, there are big political consequences to these to these kind of scandals. If we look at uh, Keir Starmer's New Year's speech, the whole point of that was about uh, reinvigorating trust in politics. Yeah. He wanted to, as he always says, he wants to shift away from the short-term politics that is defined, that he sees as defining Westminster and this uh, sticking plaster politics, and he wants to focus on the long term. Well, 
that's great. I mean, lots of people say that all the time. I do think in many ways he's almost a hostage to fortune mm. or at least the expectations, at the very least, the expectations are, are going to be raised when he comes into office yeah. for him to instill some sense of professionalism, some sense that the state is actually dealing with problems as it should. And if he doesn't do that, I think there will be electoral consequences. Thanks so much, both of you, and thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash youaskus. If you're listening on Spotify, just scroll down on the episode page and type your reply. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you can leave a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleagues Will Dunn and Freddie Hayward. We'll be back tomorrow to answer your questions in our next episode, You Ask Us. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes.